You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the, KWM, the KWMR listening area on the West Marine Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles. So on today's program, we're focusing on the recovery efforts NOAA is leading with the historic, abundant, iconic, and yummy snail, the white abalone. It was not so long ago that beachgoers beachgoers could pluck abalone from any tide pool in Southern California, but that's not the case anymore as they face potential extinction during our lifetime. So when we come back in just a few moments, we're going to be talking with NOAA Fisheries Abalone Recovery Coordinator, Melissa Newman, and Kristen Aquilino, a postdoc scholar at UC Davis Bodega Marine Lab, who's helping play a key role in recovery efforts. So stick with us here on Ocean Currents. Right, and we're back. Welcome back to Ocean Currents. This is Jennifer Stock, and today we're talking about white abalone, a iconic species for California, but in quite a bit of trouble. And the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is has a recovery plan to help bring about a return in this population, hopefully for the long run. And on the phone with us is Melissa Newman from the um, NOAA National Marine Fisheries Service. And she is the Abalone Recovery Coordinator. Melissa, you're live on KWMR. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for having me today. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. And also here in the studio, I have the person who's in charge of helping with the aquaculture and the recovery of these by doing some propagation in the lab, Kristen Aquilino at UC Davis Marine Lab. And she happens to be right here in the studio. So welcome, Kristen. Thanks very much. I want to just start with you, Melissa. Um, In 2001, white abalone became the first marine invertebrate to be listed as an endangered species. Can you take us back to what led to the listing and the intense recovery efforts that you've been such a big part of? Sure. Um, Well, I'm not sure how many of your listeners know how important abalone were to um, the commercial fishery here in California in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. Um, But in case they didn't know, it was big business in California for a very long time. Prior to that, of course, it was um, very important culturally to the indigenous people who lived in California. Um, But with the advent of better fishing methods um, um, and uh, being able to refrigerate um, abalone on boats, uh, more and more abalone were taken through the 1950s and 60s. And um, with regard to white abalone, 
The height of the fishery really occurred in about 1972 when 140,000 pounds of white abalone were collected. Uh, over 90% of the white abalone that were collected in the commercial harvest from, which lasted about 10 years, um, came from San Clemente Island and the offshore banks. So a large number of those animals came from um, a relatively small geographic area in Southern California. The, um, the species was hit very hard by the fishery. They were considered to be a rare species even prior to the fishery, um, really getting going on them. And, and then it was just hit hard. And in roughly a 10 year period, um, they were, their numbers dwindled, um, steadily until about 19, uh, 79 or 1980 when um, very few num- um, white abalone were collected in the commercial fishery. The recreational fishery mirrored that um, and peaked in about 1975 when 1,600 animals were taken in that year. <clears throat> um, one of the problematic things that occurred during this fishery um, was that as the species was getting fished down, the monetary value of the species actually rose. So as they became more rare, the price per pound went up, and so the demand for the species actually stayed high. Um, They were in high demand because, according to those who fished them and ate them back in those days, they were um, actually the tastiest of all the California abalone species, and that's why they fetched such a high price um, on on the commercial market. Anyway... um, also, um, what you should know is that the species ranges down into uh, Baja California, Mexico, um, into central Baja California, actually, and the harvest um, trends of white abalone in Mexico, as best we can tell, mirrored what happened in California. So as the fishery was declining in California in the 1970s, the same thing was happening um, in Mexico. And... This prompted the California Department of Fish and <clears throat> Game at the time, now the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, <clears throat> excuse me, to um, close the fishery for white, green, and pink abalone in 1996. And then in 1997, um, all fishing for abalone in California was closed, except for a red abalone fishery north of San Francisco. And... Um, it's really this overfishing um, pressure that occurred in the height of the fishery that brought the species to the brink of extinction. Um, what that fishery did was it reduced the densities of, abo- of white abalone to such a level that what we think is happening now in the wild is that we have some remnant populations, but the animals are just too far apart from one another in order to spawn successfully. So low density or low abundance is really um, the proximate threat to the species that was produced because of overfishing. And um, our main efforts and what we highlight in our recovery plan that was published by the National Marine Fishery Service in 2008 is to try and boost those numbers in the wild. So, wonderful overview about the abalone in general. Um, one of the questions that came up for me when you were talking about how there were still some out there in, and thinking about the timeliness of recovery efforts is what is the lifespan for an abalone? 
Well, we think that abalone um, can live to be about 35 to 40 years old. Um, There was a radio bomb carbon paper published a few years back that actually substantiated um, the fact that abalone can live to be at least 30 years old. Um, So we're we're thinking that they probably can live um, at least to 30, 35 years, probably 40 years. Wow, that's incredible. Well, that's actually really helpful for this recovery plan (laughs) overall, I would think. So um, we have several species of of abalone in California, and our whites... Typically in south, you said they go down range to Baja, but what would be the northern range for white abalone? The northern limit of the range is um, is said to be Point Conception. Okay, so they're really a Southern California species, and some of the others are spread out throughout the rest of California. Correct. All right. So tell us a little bit about um, what's been happening. It started in 2008, it sounds like, where there was a recovery plan published and um, efforts put in place by NOAA to get going on helping this species specifically. Um, Tell us a little bit about what steps were taken to help the species. Well, the recovery plan outlined um, a multi-pronged approach to bringing about recovery with an emphasis on two major efforts. The first was to implement a captive propagation and enhancement program for the species. Because low density was um, cited as being the biggest threat to the survival of the species in the wild, we needed to focus on a method that was going to help us boost those numbers in the wild. And the best solution um, was to try and bring some broodstock, some wild animals from the wild into captivity and attempt to spawn them in captivity using um, culture techniques and methods that had been developed very successfully for other species and um, it was thought that they could be developed for white abalone as well. Um, And while that effort was going on, um, we also... Um, identified the need to continue to monitor um, the, the declining population in the wild because there were, at the time of the listing, a few remnant populations that had been monitored using a remotely operated vehicle. Um, and our group down at the Southwest Fishery Science Center led that effort under John Butler at the time and now Kevin Steerhoff, um, where they would take the remotely operated vehicle out into areas that are too deep really to do any kind of um, meaningful scuba surveys in and monitor um, populations, remnant populations in those areas and try to learn something not only about how those um, populations were declining over time, but also more about their habitat. And um, so that has continued through time as well. And we've learned quite a bit on both fronts. I know Kristen is going to um, speak uh, um, in just a few minutes about all of the advances that have made have been made on the captive breeding side of things. And um, I can fill in some details on the habitat and population monitoring as we get along in the conversation. Great. Thank you so much. Um, before we get into the propagation part, I wanted to also ask, I know that over-harvesting was one of the main reasons why we got to this situation, but there was also some diseases that were happening at the time. Withering foot syndrome, I believe, is one of them. And um, how have those diseases been a part of what's happening to date now? I know you said you were monitoring that little population 
down there uh, in Southern California. And do we is this disease still a real threat in the wild for abalone? Well, um, the disease known as withering syndrome was identified primarily as a threat to black abalone, which is also listed under the Endangered Species Act. Um, we do not have any evidence from the field that white abalone declined um, in the wild due to withering syndrome, um, as opposed to black abalone, where we do have evidence that oh. um, it was a major a major threat um, and, a, and a major cause for their decline in the wild. What we do know, however, after bringing animals into captivity, um, and Kristen again can speak a little bit more to this when she when she comes on. But when we first brought these animals into captivity, um, they were housed at the. Um, Channel Islands Marine Resources Institute, and we had some very successful spawns early on by um, one of our partners, Tom McCormick, who was in charge of, of the Simri Institute. And unfortunately, many of his animals that he was able to produce back in the early 2000s um, became ill from withering syndrome and died. So we know, um, based on our experiences of keeping white abalone in captivity, that they are highly susceptible to the disease, and it nearly wiped out um, our entire captive population at that time. So um, they are very susceptible. So we highlight withering syndrome as being um, a very important threat to white abalone as we move forward and look at, uh, and, and basically look at the current situation and as we look into the future because we know that the bacteria that causes this disease is still present um, everywhere in Southern California. And so we need to make sure that what we're raising in captivity is going to be able to um, somehow handle that um, that pathogen when it's reintroduced into the wild. Well, I'm sure there's some other issues, too, that they're going to have to survive that were not so abundant or so much of an issue back then um, in the 50s and 60s. But let's talk a little bit about the propagation since we've got Kristen here. Kristen, welcome. Thank you. Um, again, folks tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and we're talking about a really cool effort to recover the white abalone population that's endangered and some really exciting ways that NOAA and partners are working together to help bring them back. Um, Kristen, new, Kristen is um, at the Bodega Marine Lab, and she is leading the propagation efforts. And I, I saw this online. You're an abalone matchmaker. <laughs> Yes, I do my best to match them up so they're all happy together and make wonderful offspring. This is exciting. So can you just start and walk us through how you raise white abalone in the lab and how do you get them to propagate? It's a very unromantic process, believe it or not. We keep them separate in buckets. We put this mild solution of hydrogen peroxide in the buckets with them. And what that solution does is create free radicals in the water. Those free radicals, we think, create the same response in an abalone as when another abalone spawns. So the abalone is in its bucket all by itself, but sensing that Abigail and Abner and whoever else is spawning as well, and because these animals are broadcast spawners, they release their eggs and sperm into the water column. They all have to do that at the same time in order to be successful. And so when other animals are spawning, they need to spawn too. When they sense these chemicals, they release their gametes, and we mix them in a very precise ratio. We have to be careful with abalone because they have this thing called polyspermy, 
where more than one sperm can fertilize an egg. So we have to make sure not to have too much sperm, that we get polyspermy, but that we have enough sperm to optimize fertilization. So occasionally we'll throw some berry white or something in there for fun <laughs> to make it a little more romantic for the rest of us, but it is, it is very sterile. <laughs> Is there a time of year that um, abalone would spawn in the wild? And do you try to mimic the natural time of year, the seasonality of it? Or is this a keep going, abalone, keep pushing out those gametes? <laughs> White abalone tend to spawn in the late winter to early springtime. And so that's where we focus our efforts. And actually, one of the things we're trying to do in captivity is figure out what environmental cues made them spawn during that time of year. Our efforts to, to get them to release their gametes are working quite well. So when we put them in these solutions, they give us all the eggs and sperm that they have. But that in the past, that often hasn't been very many. And we think that that could be because they're not becoming very reproductively mature during the time of year they're supposed to, which means they might be missing some sort of really important environmental cue to let them know, hey, winter, early spring is coming. I better invest in my gonad so I have something to spawn when it's time. So we're trying to do experiments in the laboratory to figure out what make, make, might make them tick. Interesting. What do abalone eat in, in the lab? I know they eat algae and kelp out in the wild. And do you bring in kelp from the outside? or We do. We try to feed them a natural diet. Abalone love macrocystis, the giant kelp. But it's kind of like a Twinkie to them. It has lots of calories, but not necessarily a lot of nutritional value. So we also feed them an algae called dulse which is a red algae. You can actually buy it at Whole Foods or your local health food store. It's very proteinaceous. And they don't like to eat it quite as much, but there's a lot of evidence from abalone aquaculture that they do better on this diet. They grow better. They become more reproductive. So we make them eat their vegetables, quote unquote, as well. So tell me how it feels to be responsible for raising an endangered species. It sounds, it means it's a lot of pressure for you to be managing these and also managing the lab itself. Is there concerns that you have to keep an eye on all the time, and they're kind of like your little babies that you're, you really have a lot of responsibility for. They are. I feel very proud to, to be a part of this program, and I feel very lucky to have an amazing amount of support. So not only support from NOAA, but we have great facilities at Bodega Marine Laboratory. We have lots of technicians, animal care staff, physical plant staff, aquatic resources staff that help us there. And we also have partners in Southern California, such as Aquaria and aquaculture facilities, abalone farms. And so there's a great group of people that really put a lot of effort into making this happen and make it be successful. That's great. Melissa, can you talk a little bit about some of the other folks that are raising? It sounds like there's a bit of a collaboration happening. Bodega is the one local one, but um, are there other sites that are also raising stock? Um, yes. Yeah, so Kristen mentioned our Southern California partners, um, and they are the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach, California. We've got the Cabrillo Marine Aquarium in San Pedro, California. We've got the University of California, Santa Barbara, and the Santa Barbara Natural History Museum Sea Center. And we've also got our own Southwest Fisheries Science Center um, down in La Jolla, California. And as Kristen mentioned, we are also um, on the verge, hopefully, of um, establishing a really nice partnership. We already have one, um, um, but these these farm facilities, um, both in Goleta and Cayucos, they don't have any white abalone yet, but we're, we're hoping to add additional partners. It's part of our species in the spotlight focus um, for white abalone. Um, to get more partners involved in captive propagation, um, because as Kristen can tell you, as she and the program get more successful, 
there's even greater need um, to have more facilities available for receiving um, um, early stages of white abalone as we scale up production. And it is going to take um, quite a large number of individuals um, produced in captivity to turn the situation around in the wild. Um, Kristen, how do you manage um, water in terms of the concern about disease? She was mentioning earlier that there's that nearly wiped out a whole um, stock of, of abalone. And how do you manage that? Managing disease has really contributed to the amount of success that we've been having recently. And the main way that we do that is to make sure that the disease doesn't even get into our lab. So we heavily treat our seawater. We use filtration. We filter our seawater down to five microns, which basically takes out any particulate. And we also use UV radiation to treat our seawater. We use very careful laboratory practices where we douse our hands and feet in iodine solutions to make sure we don't bring anything into the lab. And that keeps that space free of any sort of disease, whether ones we know about or ones we don't know about yet. Excellent. That sounds like the place I'd want to be if I was <laughs> going to be under medical treatment. So um, in terms of, I'm just thinking, okay, we've got all these abalone that are increasing here in these labs. And Melissa, can you walk us through a bit of um, what do we do with them once they get to a certain stage? And have there been some efforts to actually reintroduce them back into the habitats? Um, so, Jennifer, we have not um, reintroduced white abalone back into the wild yet. Um, we are The approach we're taking is actually a stepwise approach where we're experimenting um, with other species, what we call surrogate species, and trying to work out the methods um, that we would use for white abalone when the right time and place come. So this means that... Um, We've we've got a couple of different groups who are doing work with outplanting pinto abalone up in the state of Washington, where they are not doing well in the San Juan Islands. Um, and then here in California, we've got a group who's done some um, green abalone outplanting at Palos Verdes off of Los Angeles and the California Department of Fish and Wildlife in conjunction with a variety of partners, including UC Davis's BML and some of the other partners I just mentioned, um, they are doing some red abalone outplanting also in Palos Verdes. And part of the reason for that effort is to figure out when, where, how many, um, and um, exactly what methods to use in order to do the outplanting. To but, but basically increase the likelihood of success when we get to the, the white abs? Exactly. All right. So what are some of the biggest abs that you have right now in in a captivity, Kristen? Well, we actually still have one animal that was collected from the wild in 2000. When Right before these animals were listed, when we first realized that captive propagation and outplanting were probably going to be the main way to save the species, we collected 20 wild broodstock from native habitats. And only one of those remains. He is our largest animal, and he is in one of our tanks at Bodega Marine Lab. And then Melissa mentioned we had some great success early on in the captive breeding program where hundreds of thousands of juveniles were created. Unfortunately, most of those died from disease, but we still have 30 of those remaining or so sprinkled throughout our California facilities. So some of those are also at our Bodega Marine Lab. And those are about um, eight inches or so. Are they somewhat slow growing or, I mean, from the age range you mentioned before it? And the size of an abalone, I would think, sort of slow growing, right? Yeah, they grow about a half an inch to an inch a year. All right. They're going to be so excited when they get out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be a little movie created about that, the release of the abalone. 
Um, let's see. Well, well, let's go on to abalone farms here. This is something I just don't know that much about, Melissa. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about it. We're familiar with oyster aquaculture, especially up in this region and up in the Pacific Northwest. But I don't really know that much about how much aquaculture we have for abalone. But I understand this is one of the, well, the only way really for um, abalone to be sold for consumption in restaurants or I guess even uh, personal consumption. Yes. Um, so I'm not sure of the history of abalone farming in the state of California. Um, I know it's been going on probably since about the 1950s or 60s. Um, I, and, and unfortunately, though, there aren't that many farms in California. Um, when I've attended meetings, um, international meetings where the worldwide abalone trade is discussed, um, California is on the list, but there are lots of other nations in the world that are seen as being the mass producers to feed um, the demand primarily in Asia, and those countries are Australia, and um, and some of the Asian countries are actually um, producing quite a few of fa- quite a few farm raised abalone right now as well. In California, I believe there are six or seven farms in operation, and um, California Department of Fish and Wildlife actually manages and tracks those farms. So they would have much more information about the history of the farms and um, what exactly goes into um, those farms operating um, and continuing to be able to operate in California. Um, I know from the farms that we work with that they really are filling a niche market here in the United States where most of the red abalone that they, and it is all red abalone, by the way, mm-hmm. that they're producing here in California, which is the largest um, of all the abalone species worldwide. So it is, um, it is a, a prized species um, in, in terms of it producing, you know, the, basically the, the largest um, 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 foot muscle and meat that one would consume of any abalone species around the world. Um, but the Farms here in the U.S. are really selling to um, niche markets in the major cities across the United States, and um, there is probably some other business that they do, but um, that's really all I know about um, the aquaculture industry, the commercial aquaculture industry in California. Interesting. I know there's one actually locally in Sonoma County, very close to Bodega Bay on the Estero. Estero Americano? So that one hasn't been operating for a few years, Okay, but there was an abalone farm there in the past. They must have the, the uh, propagation methods down. And uh, Melissa, you were saying you were hoping to maybe get some of these involved in helping to propagate white ab? Yes. Um, actually, UC Davis, uh, Bodega Marine Lab, um, has been working with one of the farms um, over the past couple of years, mostly, you know, they've been incredibly helpful um, as we've tried to set up facilities. So they've provided a lot of guidance to Kristen and all, all of the partners in our program on how actually to set up tanks and manage water flow and all of that sort of thing. They've donated quite a bit of their time. And we're hoping that they may be able to um, to donate not necessarily donate, but participate in our program um, using part of their facility and also their expertise to help us grow out some of our white abalone in the future as we run out of space. 
That's great. Well, you know what? We're just going to take a short break. So, Melissa, if you don't mind just holding on the line for a moment, we'll come back and keep talking about the recovery efforts for white abalone. Sure. Okay, stay with us. We'll be right back. Tune to KWMR Ocean Currents here this afternoon. And in the studio with me, I have Kristen Aquilino, who is leading the propagation efforts of white abalone at UC Davis Bodega Marine Lab. And on the telephone, I have Melissa Newman with NOAA Fisheries, who's leading the abalone recovery efforts here in California. And we have about 10 minutes left, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about... How do you um, how do you sex an abalone in terms of male female? Because whenever I see them, they just they all kind of look the same. They do look really similar. And I'll start just by saying that one of my goals in this, um, besides recovering abalone and making them viable in the wild, is to convince people that abalone are cute. <laughs> they are actually an animal that we can all relate to. They have a very you know in, in the wild when you see them, they might look like a rock. They're just a big shell. But when you pull them off of that rock, you can see their strong muscular foot. That's the first thing that will be obvious. That's the part that's most tasty to us as humans. And you can also see their eyes and their mouth. Um, and so they, they are like just like your garden snails. And we can sex them as well. We can actually pull back their foot and look at their gonad. And we can tell by the color of that gonad whether they're male or female. So a male abalone has kind of a milky white gonad because it's filled with sperm. And a female white abalone has more of a gray-colored gonad because the eggs that the female carries are a little bit of a grayish color. Interesting. I had no idea you could peek under their clothing to see what they are. I'll have to check that out. And... I know that we, you know, I've seen abalone tide pooling. Where are parts where you would go? I know, actually, this, I want to talk about this. The white ab has a, kind of a different range than some of the red ab, well, the red abalone. But what, where would you go to see abalone on the coast here? You can see red abalone on most parts of the Sonoma Coast. Um, certainly, if you're willing to don a wetsuit and dive a little bit, you're likely to see more than you might see intertidally. Um, but they definitely like habitats that have lots of kelp and lots of hard, rocky substrate. They don't like sand, right? Because it don't love sand. Not, it's a little vulnerable. Interesting. I've seen a lot of. I've seen black ab app. Now I shouldn't say a lot, but I've seen them more frequently than I thought I would see them. Um, not only here in Sonoma, but also down on the San Mateo coast. And it's always a thrill. And I've even seen red abs on the on the San Mateo coast as well, which I was always shocked about. So maybe there's some good things afoot in the wild. A foot in the wild, <laughs> playing with the words here. <laughs> so in terms of numbers, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of cultivation happening at some different facilities. And Melissa, what are some ideal numbers that you feel you need in order to start that effort of outplanting once you have an idea of an ideal um, method for outplanting them? Well, I don't think we know exactly what that target number is. There is um, a a person at California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Her name is Cynthia Button, and she's actually working on trying to model um, uh, what outplanting numbers should look like. Um, at, at the experimental phase, though, I think we're looking at having to outplant hundreds, um, if not a few thousand animals, um, perhaps even more. And that would be just an experimental level of outplanting um, in one area because the reality, the harsh reality of this is, is that um, 
some of these animals are going to die. Um, this is part of the reason why we're doing these experimental studies with surrogate species because we really would like to get a sense of what might that mortality, that initial mortality rate look like. It's going to help us gauge how many we really do need to put out there in the wild in order for us to get to um, a viable population, which is our benchmark. Um, but also, um, you know, we are experimenting with all kinds of different methods for tracking the animals once we put them out in the wild. So we know that a certain number are going to die, but then the challenge really is how do you follow them over time? And um, we're just not sure how we're going to do that yet. Um, we're hoping that we're going to be able to use visual tags, but also perhaps genetic tags, in order to track our success over time. And if we can do that with other species first, then sort of scale it up a bit to try and do some experimental outplanting with white abalone where we're putting out thousands perhaps in one area, um, then we can start thinking even bigger picture um, where, and Kristen can chime in here, but we really think it's going to take millions um, of abalone outplanted in order to restore populations in Southern California. That gives me a good idea, millions. That's a lot more than I thought, maybe. Um, what's the ideal size, do you think, for outplanting? Or is there going to be experiments on different sizes, perhaps? Kristen, I think you should probably take that one. But, um, <laughs> sure. You know, um, I think that we haven't taken anything off the table just yet in terms of um, the life stage of abalone we would consider outplanting. I think ideally, though, we're looking at juveniles, and, um, and Christine, you can um, take over from there. One of the things we know about white abalone natural history is that there's this really critical metamorphosis that happens between when the larvae are, when the abalone are swimming larvae, which happens for their first week of life, to when they become crawling snails. They find a place to settle on the bottom of the ocean, and they go from these swimming things that don't eat, they rely on a yolk from their mother, to crawling things that have to eat for the first time. It's a really energetically costly process. And for the first three or so months after that settlement, we actually expect very high mortality, natural mortality, on the order of 95 to 99%. Oh, wow. And so e that's even in the laboratory, without predators and mm -hmm. poor conditions and all of that. So if we can get them through that stage in the lab, um, then hypothetically, we have a much greater chance of having them be successful in the field. So I think right now, in terms of our target size for outplanting, we want to at least get them through that stage, make them a little bit less vulnerable to predation, um, to other kinds of changes in habitat and other conditions. I can imagine this is extremely complex. I mean, just hearing about all this and just also knowing about how things are changing in California. Right now, we're in an El Nino, so there's probably not a ton of kelp in Southern California. Um, how are how Melissa and Kristen actually? How are how do you take into those um, those efforts to reintroduce the changing conditions? They seem to be changing rather rapidly. And um, thinking about predators, warm temperatures, food availability, is there anything you can do to help to raise really hardy? Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, anyway, very resilient abalone. I think one of the best things that we can do is raise a lot of them. So we know that abalone are fairly genetically diverse. If we can make sure that our culture program also has very diverse animals and we put lots out there, then hopefully they will have the variation in their genes to be able to handle some of these changes that we expect to happen over the next few decades. Excellent. 
Right, and just to add to that, you know, one of the great things about raising lots of animals is it gives um, Kristen and all the partners in the program up. Um, an opportunity to actually manipulate some things in the captive setting that will hopefully give us clues as to how well certain um, families of abalone do when hard times come. And, um, you know, having been out diving in Southern California recently, um, in a year like the year we're having, things can be very, very ephemeral. Um, six months ago, I was diving in a location where I was getting caught in the kelp at the surface. But just a couple of weeks ago, there's basically no kelp left in that area. Um, now, the kelp is starting to come back in certain areas because the water has been a lot cooler here. But those ephemeral conditions are, of course, um, really apparent to us. And I'm sure that um, to the abalone, um, you know, different um, genetic makeups are going to make them more or less able to weather those um, those short-term storms like a one-year El Nino versus those long-term, perhaps decadal fluctuations in what's going on um, in nature and then also the longer-term um, impacts of climate change. So we're thinking about all of those things and as Kristen said, um, you know, just trying to raise the most diverse stock we can and and challenge them in a laboratory setting um, would would probably um, increase our odds of being successful. Fantastic. Um, how are, has there been tests with um, changing carbon dioxide levels in the water? How do they do with ocean acidification? Any animal, especially when they're at their most vulnerable stages, such as little larvae, um, definitely seem to be impacted by changing ocean acidification conditions. And we actually have some partnerships with groups at the lab. Um, some of our colleagues are studying ocean acidification in red abalone to try to understand how um, these changes might impact animals, both that are up here on the northern coast and the southern coast, because animals on diff different parts of the coast might be experiencing already different kinds of acidity in the water due to different ocean conditions such as upwelling that occur in these different zones. So we have these partners who are looking at that. They're looking at whether maternal diet might impact the um, success or the resilience of abalone as they go through those in a really energetically costly transitions, whether or not juvenile diet might mediate some of the effects of ocean acidification. And we're hoping that some of this information might inform the work that we're doing with the white abalone. Fantastic. Does their depth, the fact that they're a deeper species overall, do you think that's an advantage for the potential recovery here, Melissa? Oh, that's a tough question. You know, historically, white abalone did occur in shallow water, and um, some of the remnant populations that are still around today are in relatively shallow water. So even though they're quite often um, tagged as being a deep water species, I think it's probably more correct to say that they are um, the species that can um, occur across the, the, the broadest depth range. So... Um, I don't really know how to answer that question. Being being deep or, or being deeper is um, potentially um, good when it comes to things like poaching, um, potentially. And so that could be good protection for them. Um, and if sea otters ever repopulate Southern California, being a little bit deeper may offer refuge, although they can Otters can dive pretty deep. Mm -hmm. um, so I am not really sure whether their depth range offers them refuge. What it, what it does do if they are in deeper water is that water tends to be colder. 
And that might offer some refuge to disease because there is an interaction between the bacteria that causes withering syndrome and um, ocean temperature. Whereas when ocean temperature goes up, um, the um, the disease actually or the prevalence of the disease also increases. So I would say that um, being a deeper water species may offer them some refuge in terms of disease. That might be that might be the biggest advantage. Interesting. Great. Well, um, Melissa, are there specific web links or things people should Google if they would like to follow more? You mentioned this is a species in the spotlight for NOAA, right. which is, I believe, focusing on species that have are really severely endangered and have need to have uh, recovery plans in place like right now. Can you talk maybe a little bit about the species in the spotlight and some other ways people can learn more about this effort? Sure. Um, well, the species in the spotlight effort was really one um, um, created to highlight the, the species that NOAA is responsible for and that are on the brink of extinction. So there's a very small number of, of species in the spotlight species, with white abalone being the only um, marine invertebrate um, in that group. And if your listeners would like to go to www.nymphs.noaa.gov, um, they can find out more about the Species in the Spotlight program um, by, I believe, clicking on the Protected Resources button when they get there. Um, a little bit more about Species in the Spotlight, what we were charged to do as recovery coordinators when developing some of the material for the Species in the Spotlight action plans was we were really charged with taking our larger recovery plan that is, you know, um, hundreds of pages long and um, boiling that down to a very short document that prioritized the actions that must occur um, over the short term in order to reverse the, the downward trend of the species. So if you take a look at that species in the spotlight plan, there are um, five primary things that we need to do, and we need to do them immediately if we're going to turn the species around. And of course, captive propagation um, um, is the first um, action on that list. Um, expanding partnerships for captive propagation is on the list. And then moving into um, outplanting these animals and basically boosting densities in the wild, that's on the list. Um, also continuing to monitor habitat so that we know a little bit more about where white abalone still exist in nature and what those habitats look like so that we can prioritize um, the places where we would like to outplant them. Um, and then, of course, um, increasing our partnerships and um, and doing more outreach and education and connecting with our Mexican colleagues is also a really, really big um, issue when it comes to turning the species around because greater than 50% of the species range is in Mexico. And if we're going to remove the species from the Endangered Species Act list, we also have to think about what's going on in Mexico um, because we must recover the species throughout its range, not just in California. Excellent. Thank you so much, Melissa, for that incredible overview. Um, ultimately, this 
this one topic even focused on such a small animal just really, to me, illustrates the interconnectivity of everything regarding the environment, but also all the people at work that are helping to save this species and all the different skills and modalities that are needed to help bring a species back. So I think it really is a great overview to show how we all have to work together amongst all these different areas to help these animals. So thank you. Kristen, how about you? Any other um, ways people can learn a little bit more? I know at UC Davis uh, Bodega Marine Lab, there are tours at the lab on Fridays, and people can at least maybe hear about or see an overview, maybe not necessarily get in and touch those abs, but... Every Friday from 2 to 4, we have docent-led public tours. And actually, if you're going to be in Bodega Bay for Fisherman's Festival this coming weekend on April 9th on Saturday, we will have tours from 2 to 4 that day as well. So you can come visit us there. Uh, You can also follow me on Twitter at Kristen Aquilino um, or on Facebook. I regularly post updates about what's going on with the captive breeding program. There's a wonderful video on the Bodega Marine Lab website just showing all the different stages through the microscope of the larval and the different as they get bigger and they settle. So... If folks are interested, that's a really cool thing to check out on the Bodega Marine Lab website for you just Google White Abalone Bodega Marine Lab. Well, I also just want to add, um, you know, in terms of things to help abalone, um, it's important to report suspicious activity and report poaching. And out here in West Marin, we are in the zone where red abalone can be harvested during recreational season. And at the docks, you might see interesting things. And it's really important for all of us to call um, Caltip, which is 1-888-334-2258 to report any suspicious activity to help that red abalone population, because it also is under a lot of stress with this warm water and lack of kelp. And it had some issues a couple years ago with a big die-off. So uh, that's another way people can help is just being vigilant and watching what's happening along the coast. Melissa and Kristen, thank you so much for joining me today here on Ocean Currents. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you, Jennifer. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Ocean Currents is always the first Monday of every month, part of the West Marin Matters series, where every Monday at 1 you can tune into KWMR to learn about a topic of environmental focus. Ocean Currents has a podcast. You can go to iTunes or cordellbank.noaa.gov to get past episodes. And I'll remind everybody, this is the 10th year of Ocean Currents, so there's a lot of episodes to catch up on if you're interested in hearing more ocean topics. I love hearing from listeners, and if you have any ideas for topics, questions, comments, please email me at cordellbank.noaa.gov, and thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the ocean, bay, or whatever body of water you can get into safely. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin. bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. 
To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.